0: Yes, I'm uh, from the Abbotsford uh, campus for Northview Community Church. I'm the high school pastor there. I've been there for, uh, since 2014. Uh, this is my wife, Danae. I've been married for two years. Uh, so it has been awesome so far. Uh, let's do a little bit of get to know you. Uh, you're going to get to know me. And uh, I'll let you in a little bit about who I am and something that I immensely struggle with. Um, it makes my life very hard, is my inability, or no, my unwillingness to drink water. Uh, I, know, I know water's good for you. Actually, I said this last service, and then uh, a, a dear lady came up to my wife and said, make sure he actually drinks water, because he will die. And so I, apparently I came across too strong. I, I do drink water sometimes, just not a lot. But it gets so bad that my like eyes get like dizzy and I can't like see straight. My head hurts, my throat's dry. And at that point is the classic signs of dehydration and I realize, ah, I should probably drink water or I'll take a nap. Uh, I just really don't like it. I would rather just drink anything else. Um, I actually bring a water bottle on stage now just in case because uh, I drink water so poorly. Uh, Two times while I've been preaching, my throat is just cut off, like mid-sentence and just gone. Um, it's pretty embarrassing because it sounds like I'm crying because your throat just stop and can't speak. And you're like, oh, he's getting emotional. And it's like, no, I'm just dumb. Um, And so I have a terrible thing in me that just doesn't drink water. Sometimes uh, my wife forces me to drink a cup of water every morning before I get to have coffee. Um, Thank you. She cares for me so well. On the other hand, Danae, she has an acute sense for or hyper thirsty. She is always drinking water, always has her like gallon jug with her and always stole my water cup from work because she says, I don't use it. Um, and she just is always always knows that she's like, I need to drink water. Oh, a little bit of thirst? I need water. Just always. I don't even know if she gets thirsty because she just drinks so much water. Except one time we were in Seattle. Uh, it was one of our dates. Well, it was actually a uh, Christmas present for her. Uh, we went to see one of her favorite, uh, or was one of her favorite, uh, Christmas movies in musical form, Elf. <laughs> Surprisingly, not good. Um, it's not. It's not good. It was not funny. It was. It was really. Yeah. It was. Was not a good musical. We didn't. We had fun. But on the way back, so we drive back from Seattle, back to BC, and it took like an hour and a half to get out of Seattle traffic. Then we finally get on the I-5. You know when you hit the I-5 and you're like, yes. Like, I'm basically home. And then Danae's like, Luke, pull over. And I'm like, what, what, like, what, like, she's stressed. She's like, Luke, pull over right now. I'm like, what, what's the matter? We gotta go, we gotta go to a restaurant. I'm like, what, are you hungry? No, I'm thirsty. I'm like, are you serious? Like, Danae, we just, we just got on. You can hold your thirst for 2 hours. I was wrong. So we pulled over, we got her a drink of water and everyone was happy. I was happy. I say that because it shows two kinds of different people. One an idiot, second, someone who actually knows their own body and can tell that they are thirsty. We as people, like we know what water's good for us, right? Like water is good. Yes, we drink water. Where we are at with this psalm is someone who is in dire thirst, who shows, he sees that I, I, I am thirsty. He, he shows, he's like, I am a thirsty person. I need water. And he puts that, he correlates that with like, I need God. Like I'm thirsty for water. I actually need, I thirst for God. It's actually, he's shown he's a very wise. He's very, he knows himself very well. He knows he needs God like someone needs water. So that's where we're going to turn to in Psalm 42. And so the big point that I want, I want you to take away from this passage is, God satisfies, everything else is unwise. God satisfies, everything else is unwise. So let's read uh, together. Psalm 42, uh, verses 1 to 5. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. That's the reading of God's word. And as we look at this, the the first line, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. We have the image. He wants you to picture this image of a man who is thirsty. I don't know how many of you are hunters here, uh, but seen, but a deer is is the image here is a deer running from its life. A deer is running from its enemies. It it, it is panting for water. It is trying to run away from his hunters. This deer is thirsty. So that image, a deer just panting, looking for water and can't find any. That's the image that this psalmist wants you to understand. He's like, picture that. That is me. I'm someone who is thirsty. I am in dire thirst of God. I will die if I do not get him. My tears have been my food day and night. So this, this, this guy has been eating tears. He is so sad he can't eat. He is just eating and drinking his tears so much it becomes his food source. This this man is distraught. He is in pain. Why? Why is he like this? Why is this psalmist so upset? Well, it says right here: people are asking him, where is your God? He says, when can I go and meet with God? He can't find God. He can't be with God. So this man somehow knows he is thirsty for God, knows he needs God, but he can't. God's not there. So it brings us a question, why? Why can't he find God? Why can't he search him? Like, like I, we don't get that. We don't understand that because we, we have this, we, we, we can go to church, we can uh, pray, we can read our Bibles. Why, why can't this guy find God? Well, the answer is here in this text. When he answers, he's like, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng." And if we read later in in verses 6 to 11, we see that he's actually standing at a riverbank looking to where Jerusalem would be. So the answer here is that he's actually in exile. He's not in Jerusalem. He can't go to the house of the Lord. He can't go and, and see the temple of God where God's presence is. Israel has been exiled, Israel is out of Israel. The Jews have left the building. So here they are, a people. Here's this man, a person who thirsts after God, and he's like, I-, I can't go to the temple anymore. And who this man is, he's a son of Korah, which is a temple musicians. So picture Ben. Ben's job is to play music. This, this guy's job was to play music. He was a temple musician. He'd be playing in the temple. So in Jerusalem, you'd have to go up to the temple three times a year. Three times a year, all males had to go, so the families went with them. And temple musicians would be there playing with the the throng of people playing and inviting people, come, come to the temple, come, let's worship God. They'd be inviting these people up. And so this, this, this son of Korah, he's like, I remember doing that, but we can't do that anymore because they're in exile. And so it might still be a bit lost on us. Of like, okay, okay, like I understand that you can't go to the temple, but surely you can still like pray and be with fellow believers. Yes, but the problem is actually how they viewed the temple and how they viewed the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple, in the holy place, in the, in the temple. And this was believed where God's presence was, that this is where the glory of God actually sat in a very holy place. To to show you how much they believe this, there's a story in 1 Samuel when Eli was uh, the prophet of Israel. Uh, Israel is at war with the Philistines. Uh, Eli is old. His sons are wicked people. And Israel has been losing battle after battle after battle to the Philistines. And so what they decide to do, they're like, hey, let's, let's give our secret weapon a shot. huh?" So what they do, they think it's real clever. They're like, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. God's presence will actually be with us and then we'll win. They're like, great idea. The Ark enters Israel camp, huge roar. The Philistines are like, whoa, what's happening? There must be a God in the camp. So the war happens and the Israelites get demolished. They run home. The ark gets captured. And so now there's a messenger who's coming to Eli, who's old and waiting for the news. Did we win? Are my sons okay? So the messenger comes back. Uh, Eli, bad news. Uh, both your sons are dead. Another messenger comes. Uh, Eli, worse news. The ark of the covenant has been captured. At the hearing of these two things, Eli's... Uh, daughter-in-law starts giving early birth. She gives birth and she calls the kid Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. Eli hears this news, falls over, breaks his neck and dies. But you hear the word Ichabod, the glory of Israel, the glory of God has departed from Israel. That's their view. The ark is gone, Everything's lost. God has left the building. God is not here anymore. So it's with this view. If you cannot be in the temple, if you cannot be by the ark, where God's glory is, you can't be with God. God is not there. They they had a distinct tie between the presence of who God is with the temple and with the ark of the covenant. And this man, the son of Korah, could no longer be there. He could no longer be in the presence of the Lord where he played his instruments in praising how great God is. And so he stands there thirsty for God, saying, God, when can I meet you? When can I go back to the house with my friends, with my family? When can I go back to the festivities of celebrating your name? I think we can sort of understand this, right? Like sort of understand the hardness of not being able to celebrate who God is in the midst of a difficult time with with COVID. Not being able to go and worship together. Not being able to be with one another. To miss the people you didn't even know you'd miss. Those conversations that you'd have on Sunday morning, the the, the 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 family you didn't know was family. It got hard and tiring. For what, 18 months? And it's still challenging and it's still hard. We can understand a little bit of what this son of Korah is going through, and he's like, I can't be with God. My soul is downcast. We can relate a little bit to what he is saying. But more so, like how long were they in exile? One year, two year, three year, four year, 50 years, 100 years, 400 years? Like it was a long, long time. We can't relate fully, but we can relate a little bit of the the hardness that this past Year and a bit has been on the church, on the church family, of not being able to meet together. And there's a reason why he uses the words, My tears have been my food. I've been feeding off my tears. Uh, I have family that lives in Saskatchewan, and my uh, mom, every time we leave my family in Saskatchewan, she cries. She just cries bucket loads. Because she just doesn't know when we're going to see them again. We don't plan anything super well. So we just don't know when we're going to see them next. And that makes sense, right? When you don't know you're going to see someone who's very important in your life, like you probably will cry. You're like, I don't know if I'll see you. Um, one of my friends and fellow pastors who just got a job uh, at a different church, um, he hugged some of us goodbye and he said, see you in heaven. And I'm like, well, hopefully Sooner. But it's kind, of, it's kind of the long game there. But like it's sad. So this man, he is crying. He's in turmoil. And I think a good image of who this man would be is a refugee. They got taken out of their land, put into a foreign land with a foreign king, with foreign gods, foreign food, foreign culture. And to top it all off, people are saying, where is your God? If your God was so tough, wouldn't he have beat us? But we beat you. Our gods are bigger than your gods. Being mocked countless. You know the, the phrase, kicking a dog while it's down? Well, Israel's down. And they keep getting kicked after kick after kick. Where is your God? Where is your God? Why don't you go worship your God? Can't. Do it. So you get the picture of this man who is so terribly sad about his circumstances. And he has right to be sad. It's hard. It is, is a hard place, hard thing what he has to do. He can't be where he wants to be anymore. But then verse five happens and he does something. That I think is very, actually countercultural for us today. something that we do not naturally do, nor do we ever want to do it. we actually do the opposite. So we're going to read and then we're going to get a couple application points from this. So verse five, "Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God." So two so two Applications that I think are very countercultural for us. The first one, what we are to do as Christians, is question everything but who God is. Question your thoughts, question your feelings, question your actions, question the culture, question everything but who God is, the character of God. So, what he does is he questions why are Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed? He is questioning his innermost feelings and his thoughts. How often do we do that? How often is it the other way around where we have our thoughts and our feelings and they guide our decision making in life? I feel sad, so I'm going to do this. I feel happy, so I'm going to do this. We find ourselves in terrible situations because we go off our thoughts and off our feelings. We take our circumstances and we do what our circumstances are telling us to do. How often do we actually search ourselves and question, soul, why are you so upset? Put your hope in God. How often do we do that? See, the author knows the character of who God is is greater than their circumstances. The author knows the character of who God is is greater than whatever circumstance that he can go through. He can go through exile for hundreds of years. But never doubt the character of who God is. Um, but, this is but that's tough for us, is it not? Like it, it is tough in those circumstances when our soul is downcast to actually question it and then rely and look onto who God is. I find it tough in my life. I have a card that I carry around. Uh, it's from a book called Gospel Fluency. Great book. Uh, and he has their own gospel reminders. And it, I read this. And what it, what it says is like, when experiencing unbelief. So when experiencing turmoil in my life, these are questions that I walk through in my head to kind of sort out my feelings and where they're coming from. So what am I experiencing right now? So what kind of feeling am I thinking? Am I hurt? Am I anxious? Am I depressed? In light of what I am doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself? Well, so if it's anxiety, if I'm feeling anxious, I believe that my actions, that I am control of everything, and uh, my anxiety is me telling me, like, Luke, you better do a good job or else it's not going to, like, nothing's going to work the way you want. Then the next question is, what do I believe God has done or is doing? Well, if I'm anxious and I believe that I'm in control, I believe God's doing nothing. That God is a God who does not care, does not help me. He just is off there doing his own thing, just like pointing and laughing at me. He's like, ah, look at this silly little human, try to do stuff. And the last question is, what do I believe God is like? I believe God doesn't care. I believe he doesn't love me, that he doesn't want me, right? So when you go through this question and you're like, okay, I came out with the answer of God doesn't care, God doesn't love me. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not, that, that is the, the one that I am questioning. So that's why there's a backside. And the backside is the gospel reminder that I need. Who is God? Well, God is someone who cares. God is someone who is sovereign, wise, He is loving, He is in control, He is good, He is all those things. And what has He done? Oh, He has loved me so well, past and present, and I know future. God has done so many things for me. He gave His Son so that I may have life, He's given me breath in my lungs. God has done more for me than anyone else has. Who am I in light of God's work? Well, because Jesus died for me, I am now a son. I'm a son of the king. That's who I am. And then how should I act in light of who I am? Well, I should be confident. If I'm the son of the king, nothing can happen. Nothing can harm me. I am eternal until God calls me home. I'm immortal until God calls me home. That is who I am. That is what it looks like to question your thoughts, your feelings, because our thoughts and our feelings will push us away from God. They will. We like to do things our own way. So I carry this around to help remind me who is God. Luke, question your feelings. Question your thoughts. Luke, question your soul. Why are you so downcast? People, we need to be good at this. We need to be good at questioning our very thoughts, our very feelings, our very souls. And we need to get very good at relying on who God is and knowing the character of God. So where this actually shows up um, is in John 4. John 4 is the woman at the well passage where uh, Jesus is in Samaria where he really shouldn't be because he's a Jew and they're not Jews. And so he goes there, his disciples go to get food, and he's at the well, and a woman comes along. And Jesus shouldn't talk to a woman, but he does anyways. And so he starts talking about a conversation about being thirsty, about water, about asking if he can get a drink from the well. And this is how their conversation ends. Jesus said to her, "'You are right when you say you have no husband. "'The fact is you have had five husbands "'and the man you are now with is not your husband. "'What you have just said is quite true. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you are a prophet. "'Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, "'but you Jews claim that the place "'where we must worship is in Jerusalem. "'Woman,' Jesus replied, "'Believe me, a time is coming "'when you will worship the Father "'neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. "'You Samaritans worship what you do not know. "'We worship what we do know.' For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. That beginning part. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. What Jesus gives is thirst-quenching water. What Jesus gave was himself. Jesus lived, died, and rose again. He He lived a perfect life to cover all our sin, all our shame, all our blemishes in this life. And he says that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, will have this water, this spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is what you will get. You'll become a son, a daughter of the one true king. God is that anchor in our drought. God is that anchor for us. He is that spring of water. He is our hope. Jesus' life, death, resurrection... It gives us hope for this life. He actually quenches our thirst. He gives us water that can't be taken away. He gives us this hope in eternal life. So, what we're to do is question everything emotions, thoughts, feelings and remember who God is in light of all your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And then application number two is we need to stop trying to quench our thirst for God with anything but God. We are people who often try to quench our own thirst with things that are never meant to quench our thirst. I think an illustration for this, it's not a very good movie, but Anchorman, and in this movie, uh, there's a main character, Will Ferrell, and he... uh, is very upset in San Diego. Uh, He lost his job, he lost his friends, and he's wearing this suit, and life's just going terrible for him. And he's walking down in the San Diego heat, which is very hot, and he's drinking milk. He finishes his milk, and then he says a classic line, ah, milk was a bad choice. That is us. We keep drinking things that are bad for us. We keep going back to the same thing over and over again, something that will not satisfy. We do that in our culture all the time. We think, oh, if only, if only I could buy this thing, this car, then I will be happy. If only I started dating this person. If only I got married. If only we had kids. If only we had grandkids. If only we had whatever you want, then I'll be happy then I'll be satisfied. But if you've lived any amount of life, you know everything loses its shine. And then you just want something else, just something a little bit more expensive or just a higher paying job. The thoughts and the feelings creep in. You're like, oh, maybe I just need a little bit more. We stop questioning our feelings. And a passage that this comes up in is John 7. John 7, uh, Jesus is at a week-long festival. It's a festival to remember what it was like being or wandering through the desert for 40 years. And in the pinnacle of this festival, this is what happens. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those, uh, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing the, his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendant and from Bethlehem in the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So Jesus here at the pinnacle of this festival, he's like, believe in me. I will give you springs of water. I will give you water everlasting. Nothing else will satisfy your thirst. Jesus is saying, only me. Jesus is the only one who can save you. The only one who can actually satisfy our souls. I think there's, there's, there's wisdom in that. That Jesus is the only one. There's no toy you can buy. There's no other person. There's, there's no amount of money large enough that's ever going to be like, oh, yeah, I am good now. That's only when you put your hope in Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. Only Jesus. He is the one we can put our hope in, our trust in. Friends, we got to know that we are thirsty people. We got to know that we are naturally people who are thirsty and Jesus actually quenches it. Nothing else in this life, nothing where your thoughts or your emotions lead you, but Jesus, only Jesus. But the question is, do you know you're thirsty? Like we're all thirsty people, but do you know that you are thirsty? And I'm going to close uh, with this quote from Augustine, who is an early church father. This is what he says in a church service to his people. He's talking about what it looks like for someone to be a healthy Christian. Give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. Give me one far away, In a desert who is thirsty and sighs for the spring of the eternal country. Give me that sort of man, he knows what I mean. But if I speak to a cold man, he just does not know what I mean. Are you somebody in love? Are you somebody who is thirsty? Do you know your own thirst for God, if you've been looking in your life at all these other shiny things in your life and trying to put your hope in those, you will never find it. Do you recognize your thirst for something that is unattainable in this life and it's only meant for the eternal country? This is why the psalmist can say, put your hope in God. When he questions his very soul, put your hope in God. Because he is the one who saves. He is savior and him alone. I'm gonna pray and the worship team and David's gonna come back on. So Father, uh, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that um, we can see in your word how there's been people who've gone through droughts, uh, through hard times, but still put their hope in you. So God, I pray that we can be ah, like the psalmist and put our hope in you. That we would question our very souls, our very feelings and rely and know that you are good, you are God, you are sovereign and put our trust in you that you are the one who saves. God, work in our hearts to love you more and your people more. Father, we, we want to be people who know we are thirsty. So God, open our eyes to see how we thirst for you and help us to only look to you to quench our thirst. Let us not be caught up by our thoughts, our feelings, of what's going around, uh, going on around us, but let us look to you. Praise all through your son's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.